Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and me, Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss telltales that help us invest, namely the energy markets, macroeconomics, and technology. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The host may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. Let's, uh, let's start. I think it's about 3.30. Nothing really to report on the price of oil. I think oil, copper, net coal, iron ore, all commodities we can think of will be better when China gives up on their COVID lockdown or softens up on it. But despite all the rumors, the official position seems to be that when a area, urban or otherwise, starts to have too many cases, there there is a lockdown. I think there's some vulnerability on all these commodities because without the second world the world's second largest economy growing, there's going to be a demand supply imbalance. On natural gas, I've done some work over the past week, and because supply is running ahead of forecast, I think primarily due to associated gas production in the um, in the Permian, in the Delaware and Midland basins. So there is a bit of a bit of an oversupply. The, Freeport LNG facility still hasn't come on, although it's supposed to, and someone's nominated a ship to come in and pick up the first cargo. It'll be a huge comfort if two things happen in the natural gas market. One, Freeport comes back on, which is two Bs of demand. The second is we start to get some cold weather in in the Midwest and the Northeast. And uh, I think both of those things are likely to happen. But in the meantime, gas stocks are a bit weak. Um, in terms of macro, the election really wasn't a red wave. I mean, I guess House will move over to the Republicans, but not with, you know, a 30 or 40 seat ma- majority, probably with a 10 seat majority. Senate looks like, you know, if you had to guess now, it'll it'll wind up with the Democrats still in control with 50-50 or maybe 51-49. In terms of the capital markets, continues to be stress. As I've mentioned, we've all mentioned in prior Wednesdays, as you draw that Fed balance sheet down by 90 billion a month, which is the runoff. In other words, you don't reinvest the interest and the maturities coming off the Fed's balance sheet of of government bonds and, and mortgage bonds, there will be stress. I'd say the latest stress is one of these crypto exchanges, you know, having illiquidity, kind of a run on the bank situation uh, in the last few days. And stresses that like that will continue. A very good question is, will any of those stresses rise to the level where central banks, and especially the US central bank are fed you know, relents a bit. And the answer is not yet. I mean, you had that situation in the UK government's market, the guilt's market, but they kind of left the Bank of England to fix that. And Bank of England more or less kept control over it. 
as far as the cryptocurrencies go, I think it's very much like when Drexel got in trouble, the government, the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve just decided to let it slide below the waves. I think that's what the U.S. Central Bank and central banks in general will do. The other thing I'd point out, and then I'm going to ask Mike and Jason to comment especially on this. We saw the Meta or Facebook announcement of letting go, you know, 20% of their workforce and all the other large tech companies have hiring freezes on, some have announced layoffs. It seems to me that what these businesses are doing is kind of right-sizing, having had this scramble to hire enough engineers so that they could continue to expand their their uh, their offerings to uh, their customers. Now they're all headed headed in the other direction. I think that's probably good for stockholders of these companies, and probably a, a little overdue. The largest layoff, of course, is Twitter. Half of their employees, and of course, we looked at Tesla earlier in the year, and uh, Mike and Jason and I are kind of positive about Tesla, especially as the price gets down. So there's kind of some interrelationship there. The companies we're looking at this week are payments companies, uh, MasterCard and Visa and PayPal. And of course, an early part of PayPal was how uh, Elon Musk first started to accumulate capital. He formed a company that was sold to PayPal. So, and then in the news, we have the second largest crypto exchange having to close because of a run on the bank. And uh, so I think this is a relevant discussion we're having this week. I'm going to pause and see if Mike or Jason have anything to add to what I've said. But then what I'd like to do, since both Mike and Jason have a fair amount of experience working in the payments areas, and there are other payments companies, I'd like to turn the rest of the half hour, I think we've just used about six minutes, I'd like to turn the rest of the half hour over to them to focus on payments and technology there. Because after all, whether we some of the software stuff is discussed or the chip manufacturing companies, all that equipment is used in the payments area. Also, you'll remember we decided to vector away from China under the difficulty of figuring out, you know, how badly chip companies or software companies or equipment companies were going to be hurt by China. So uh, uh, payments is one of the areas we went off to. You know, we've looked at, you know, streamers, Netflix and Disney and whatnot. Next week, we plan to look at the large retailers, the Walmart, Target, Home Depot and, and Lowe's. And once again, these companies are benefiting enormously from the capability, you know, whether it's keeping your information in the cloud or whatnot that's been developed. But for the moment, we're focused in on payments. So uh, over to Mike and Jason. So just to close the loop on the Facebook layoffs, it's sort of interesting what's happening in Silicon Valley right now. After many years of constant expansion, it is now switched and become popular to right size and start thinking about cash flow and some of the other things that traditionally investors look for. There, there was a meeting when Tim Cook first uh, took over at Apple, supposedly a dinner between him and Carl Icahn, and Carl Icahn apparently kind of laid out the investment case and said, hey, you've, you've got options here. If you are good stewards of your capital, you'll be 
well rewarded and kind of laid the case for repurchasing lots of stock and you know focusing on profitability and and, and whatnot. And uh, what what's kind of interesting is if you go back and look at how Facebook is doing as a you know growth of their share price and whatnot in comparison over that same period or leading up to that, it was doing about the same. They were all these companies were growing a lot. You're kind of seeing a, a divergent path from there. Obviously, Apple's done famously well. They've continued to be profitable and kept a relatively normal size organization. The growth in the headcount in a lot of these tech companies has been high. So now we're seeing investors calling for shrinking payrolls. So Brad Gerstner, who runs Altimeter Capital, which is a cross-asset class fund that does both public equities and growth equity for private markets, wrote an open letter to Meta. And the thing that everybody sort of pointed to with Meta and Zuckerberg in particular is unlike Tesla and Elon Musk, Zuckerberg has super voting shares, which gives him control of the company. So he doesn't really have to listen to his skeptics because he still has voting control of the company. But the point of the letter was that it would behoove him to do a better job with managing the finances of the business. And it seems that that message has been heard. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more layoffs, especially in the the Google, Microsoft, Amazon of the world. Um, We've heard anecdotally through different people that have worked at some of these companies that they have bloated a lot. The last three years have been seen significant headcount increases and Again, anecdotally, relatively little increases in productivity, which kind of ties into the recent uh, Department of Labor produces total, total factor productivity reports, which are down year over year. So to wrap all that up, I, th- I think it's warranted. Yeah, I, I would just say, I think this is just the the tip of the iceberg. When you said that these companies were growing uh, headcount year over year, looking at Meta, they're growing their headcount 25 to 30% every year the last five years. Right. You know, these are software businesses, internet businesses. You're supposed to be able to generate a lot of money from, you know, a website, selling software, selling ads, and it's supposed to scale tremendously with a few few people. These companies have gotten to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And we're talking about layoffs now that put the company back at a size it was just last year. They, they've been bloated for years. I, I think there's a lot more layoffs that should happen, and the only thing that prevents it is is they're just hugely unpopular. Jason, Jason what, what was the motivation to, was it just, it's hard to, to hire engineers, so just inventory as many of them as you can, or what was the motivation to? Yeah, that's or, or, certainly part of it. They would try to hire the best talent to squash competition. So if, if, if you have all the best engineers, it's a lot harder for anyone competing against you to, to effectively compete if you have all the talent. They would acquire companies just so they have the people, pay them a, a, a lot of compensation, and, and not really have them work. And they would just be on the sidelines so that no one, so that they couldn't be competing against them you know, for anyone else. A good example of that is in, at Google, there's a designer for practically every button on the Gmail webmail product. So your entire job is one button, 
and then a whole organization of management that sits on top of it that directs the overall style and design. So you, you talk about a lot of people doing something that's kind of like, you know, you could probably do that whole organization with two or three people. Yeah. So, What about, do you think there's anything going on here between, uh, well, let me quote you a number. I have a friend who's in the commercial real estate owning office buildings here in New York. And they have a service that keeps track of the percentage of people who are coming to work as compared to pre-COVID. And, you know, it got very low. At one point, I remember him telling me it was like 5 or 6%. It, it worked back, and it worked back to around 45%, but it, it, it just hasn't gotten any higher. It's kind of flatlined at 45%. I assume a comparable number in um, Palo Alto or, or, you know, generally in California is much lower. Do you think it would be half of 45% or what, what do you think the percentage is? I, I've heard rumors as well that it's really bad in San Francisco. Um, I've heard a quarter and I've looked into ways that you could maybe uh, – if there's not readily available ways to play that because most of the REITs are not super concentrated in the geographic area, if you will. So, yes, it's definitely worst in San Francisco and probably not getting better anytime soon. Yeah, interesting. Jason, you're the payments expert. Do you have – before we get into payments, let's talk about something that – is much more <laughs> more suitable, really, uh, based on recent news, and that's uh, how do these crypto exchanges uh, keep from having runs on the bank, or is there no way, or or what what should we expect over the next few months? Oh, as for what to expect, you know, expect the unexpected. I think it's interesting watching this, I'm not an expert on how these exchanges work, but I know that a lot of the crypto assets are highly leveraged. So it's not surprising to see one big seller. And in, in, in this case, what happened this week is, is the two largest exchanges were holding each other's tokens. And one of them, Binance, the CEO of that company decided he's going to sell all the tokens that the other exchange is kind of backed by. And in that process, created a liquidity crisis at that exchange and essentially run on the bank and they were insolvent and he bailed them out. And now he took his competition out in the course of two days. So I've always kind of felt crypto was like a house of cards. And, and this is clearly, you know, these are the, the biggest parts of, of that ecosystem falling. The smaller ones have all fell, not all fell. A, a lot of, a lot of cases have, have happened where, in the last couple of months, they've went under, and now it's bubbling up to the big ones. Um, I guess my, my overall opinion on, on blockchain technologies, um, at risk of making us the least popular crypto podcast, uh, is, is uh, it was really a solution looking for a problem. If you, look at, if you look at the blockchain most popular technologies, Bitcoin can only process seven transactions a second. Ethereum can only process 20 transactions a second. They've made some other ones that are a lot better, 
but none of them come close to to just Visa alone processes can process twenty four thousand transactions a second. They have some some competing techniques to make that better, namely sharding. So essentially, you can think of that as split your system in two. Now you can do double the work. It's not that easy though, because if you think about you know someone putting money in your left hand, you want to pay someone else with your right hand. Your right hand has to count the money in your left hand. You have to reconcile that, and then you can make the transaction. So. They're talking about sharding these databases many, many times to get the the amount of transactions they can handle, um, so that it actually could be a, a viable payments platform. It just it, it's a it's a nightmare. And then eventually, you've sharded it so many times, and you have all these little networks all over the globe that can handle transactions that you trust, and we'll call them banks, and use air quotes on banks and like, how is this that much different than a normal financial system? You're looking at a trusted, uh, you know, a trusted bank, you're going to send your information to one server or a group of servers and, and they're going to process your transaction and then notify the other banks. I just don't think, I don't think crypto is a, is a better solution to anything out there. I've, I've yet to, to see the use case where it is better I have a lot of friends that are into it, and and they say it, it's better for various things, but I, they've never convinced me that it that it actually is. Mike, anything to add? No, not to the not to crypto. I mean, crypto has been around for a decade, more than a decade, and so far we haven't seen a single blockchain solution other than building Ponzi schemes that's been effective at generating value. So I guess I'm still skeptical. I I keep track of it because I think that it's good that people are trying to innovate in these areas. But you got to remember that the traditional payment companies were pretty major innovators as well. And there's a reason that Visa, MasterCard, American Express are sort of a oligopoly, if you will, of of payments. Because at the end of the day, businesses need to receive payments and they don't want to have relationships with thousands of different payment networks and people don't necessarily want to be restricted in where they go to use their credit. So, uh, you know, the innovations of the call it the previous generation, I guess are still the best that's out there. I guess we'll see what happens next, but none of this new stuff really is any better in my opinion. Right probably should have put American Express in the comparison. By the way, I I hope I don't cause a flood of emails, but a lot of you on the phone know that I used to keep up about a 25-page memo on, oh, I don't know, 50 companies. Oftentimes, it was one page per company. I've started again. A lot of people have asked me, uh, when are you going to start update those or start them again or whatnot? The answer is, I think I found a better way to do it. And I send it to Mike and Jason every Monday afternoon. I, I do this work on the weekends. And so, for example, there's page six. I'm out to six pages is a comparison of Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal. And I think Diane has it. Most of you have Diane's email address. If you want to get on a, uh, a list to get it, do it through Diane or do it through Mike. But Mike raising American Express, I just didn't even think to put it in the comparison. I think of American Express as being kind of high-end 
credit card, not necessarily a payments company. And whereas Visa and MasterCard, I'm going to say some things that, that we're going to have to get backed up by Mike or Jason because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off into an area where they're more experienced. But Apple Pay, for example, or almost everyone else who use cards or our payment systems comes to the conclusion that Visa does it so efficiently that they basically just assign it to Visa. Is that a is that 80 or 90 percent true, Jason or Mike? Or that's I've read that places, but you you'd be more informed about it. That's right. Most of, most of these payment platforms are running on top of Visa, Mastercard, American Express, Rails, and that tells you how much of a, um, I hate to use the word again, but moat that they have. And disrupting that is going to be, you'll need a 10x better solution. And back to the blockchain solutions, there's just not 10x better. So until there's a 10x better solution, the best thing for these tech companies to do, and I think that's a good observation, is how did, how did Apple approach this problem? They said, we want to be able to use our payment feature anywhere. And in order to do that, we have to ride on traditional payment networks. Right. Well, I apologize. I should have said something last week, but looking at my page six, which the people who have it have it, Visa, Visa and MasterCard started as kind of co-ops amongst banks. And then I don't know whether it was for regulatory reasons or just to try to realize the profit that was there. They both became public many, many years ago. And, uh, but to just give you a, you know, Mike used the word moat, a visa is the largest, but I'm going to focus on MasterCard rather than Visa because Mike and I talked for about 20 minutes every morning and he brought up something he didn't understand in the cash flow statement. It's fairly substantial sum, like half their cash flow. And I looked at it earlier between Yorktown meetings and I don't understand it either. So in speaking about how this business goes, or looks or is structured, I'm going to speak to MasterCard. And MasterCard, the way to think about MasterCard is the total equity valuation of Visa is around 400 million. The total equity valuation of MasterCard is about 300 million. And in almost every category, MasterCard is about three quarters of Visa. So the way they count revenue, which is from, from using their rails, however you want to call it, MasterCard realizes around 23 billion a year in revenues. And if you, as you go through their income or cash flow statement, their cash cost of doing all that looks like around six. And then they have about 2 billion of SGNA and two, they pay about 2 billion of income tax and they have very low capex under a billion. So they have 12 billion. In other words, they, they start out with $23 billion of revenue and about half of it comes down to free cash flow. If you relate their enterprise value around 300 to that, you're, 
you've got about a 4% free cash yield, which isn't bad. We own companies where the free cash yield is only one and a half or 2%, even at reduced valuation. So 4% isn't bad. But the next thing I do with these tables is I try to figure out from the most recent results, how much free cash flow is growing. And these calculations for MasterCard and Visa, because Visa is about the same way, about a 4% free cash yield, is it looks as though off their interim reports, their free cash flow is growing in the range of 12, 13, 14% a year. So uh, if your free cash flow is 4% and you're growing 13% a year, that should be over time, you know, over years, half a decade or a decade, you should be able to compound your money at around that total of the free cash flow yield plus the growth. Now, what do they do with their free cash, with their 12 billion of free cash? They pay 2 billion of it out in, in dividends. So the dividend yields rather low. In other words, they're only paying out a sixth of their free cash yield. So their, their, the actual dividend yield is, you know, only about six tenths or seven tenths percent, but they are buying in $8 billion of stock. They have relatively little debt. They have about 14 billion of debt. It's a, you know, it's a very tied down wire business. It's, it's, based up, its headquarters is up in Purchase, New York, up in Westchester. So it's definitely kind of a Northeast business. And uh, it'd be hard to argue if someone said, I mean, the stock range is, you know, from about 400 to 200, it's trading for a little more than 300. If someone just says, look, I like this business, obviously payments are going to benefit from inflation. I mean, you would think, I mean, it, you, you think is, since so much money is running through there, as I say, the, the revenue is 23 billion, the, the amount of money running through the thing is trillions, that it, it, it should benefit from that. Now, Mike and Jason, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, trying to compound money with Topmark, I assume that you would think MasterCard is just too kind of easy or not hard enough or Hopefully you could take money that would that you might otherwise invest in MasterCard and invest in something that you could do better with. But over to the two of you. Well, one of the ways that we think about it is: is there something that we understand that the broader market doesn't understand? And I don't think there's anything about these companies that I will understand better than most of the analysts that look at it. Mainly because the, you know, the technological arc has already passed. At this point, they're collecting dividends on prior investments, if you will. Um, so, I agreed. Looking at them, unless there was some new thing that they were doing, and you could buy it cheap, then I probably wouldn't get that excited about it. And I, I don't see anything really significantly exciting about either of those. I did look at American Express this afternoon. I thought that it was more, again, it'll be interesting to see your take when you look at it, Hunt, but I thought it was more attractive than both MasterCard and Visa. 
from a valuation standpoint. But yeah. his, historically speaking, Visa has been a very good investment over a long period of time. Yeah, MasterCard I used to own, and I, I wish I hadn't sold it, I guess, now that I look at it now. Uh, interesting enough, the reason I sold it is they have this constant litigation going on. They, they must be supporting all these lawyers who bring antitrust actions on behalf of merchants, and they, they, they just never seem to go away. And I guess one day I was looking at that, and I thought, hey, this is a this is Achilles' heel of this business, and I, I wish... I wish I'd never had that thought because I would have been much better off just continuing to own MasterCard. Just that we're, we're actually at the 30 minute level, but just for another two or three minutes, Mike makes a very good point. But PayPal is kind of like MasterCard Visa and only it's, as far as I can see, just a total mess. I mean, the revenue where MasterCard has 23, well, first of all, it only trades for a hundred billion. So, it's like a third the size of MasterCard, a quarter the size of Visa. It has a lot more operating costs out of the 27 billion, only about 10% comes down in free cash flow. It's trading at 40 times free cash flow. It does have an activist there, Elliot. And interestingly enough, since Tesla's been in the news, Musk has been in the news, this was the first significant business that Musk developed and sold, uh, sold into PayPal, became a significant PayPal stockholder. So with that, uh, Mike and I have held forth on this. Jason, if you were allocating time to go work on something, uh, what are the pros and cons of PayPal? Because obviously Elliot's working on it and it just looks from the financial statements and the cash flow statement and whatnot that there ought to be a way to make PayPal better. but is I looked at it and I, I got so concerned about some of the stuff I was reading about in the footnotes, I just said too hard and put it aside. But mm -hmm. Jason, what would your approach be on PayPal? Yeah, I haven't dove into PayPal, but we, we like pick and shovel businesses at Topmark. And while you could say PayPal is one of them, again, they still ride on top of the traditional finance processing rails. So I'd probably want to go down a layer and, and still look at, at those other businesses we were talking about. I think PayPal is going to have a, a lower margin business just because of that. They're, they're collecting the retail processing merchant fees, but then they have to pay a portion of that back to Visa or MasterCard. So they could maybe and, have better scale, but you know, yeah. they're still paying those guys. And the other one out there is Square. Any views on Square? On a high level, Square's too leveraged to cryptocurrencies. They made a, the stock ran up a lot during COVID when all the cryptocurrencies did, and it's coming back down, I suspect, at the same right. time. <laughs> and there is a relation here. The CEO of Square is Jack Dorsey, and of course, he was one of the founders of Twitter as well. So it was a period of time where he was the CEO of two public companies, Twitter and Square. Yeah, I, and I believe he's the blockhead of Square. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Okie doke. Well, sorry, everyone, for running over an extra four minutes. We'll, uh, we, we, we promise not to uh, use more than 30 minutes of your time most of the time. In the meantime, every, everyone.